This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Romans chapter 1, they will focus our attention this morning on verses 6 and 7. Hear the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for the scriptures this morning as we're able to come and think about them, study these uh, verses together today. Father, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. Father, we do not presume to study your word in our own strength or in our own power, but Lord, we pray for your help. We pray that you would show us those things that you would have us to know, Lord, uh, as, as a congregation, but also as families and as individual believers. Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would do that work. Sanctify us by the truth, Lord God. Your word is truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last several months that our son was at U.S. Marine Corps boot camp at Paris Island, our communication with him was rather restricted. He had no access to email. He had no access to uh, Facebook uh, or any of the other electronic ways of staying in touch that we use this way. He didn't have a cell phone, couldn't text. Uh, so we sort of went back in time a little bit and engaged in something that is increasingly rare in our day, and that was communication over an extended period of time by handwritten letter. Now, when I was in school, uh, I don't know if children today learn this, but I can remember at least once, maybe twice, learning how to set up a letter, how a personal letter should be structured, how a business letter should be structured, some of the differences there. Uh, but even if you haven't done that, you probably know that uh, we typically begin a letter uh, similarly to the way we might write an email. We might say, hi, so-and-so. In a letter, typically, you would say, dear Caleb, in this case, uh, and you'd ha- write the letter, and at the end, you would, you would have your, uh, your, your closing, something like uh, sincerely or cordially or warmly, or in this case, love, that. 
However, in Paul's day, the letters were structured a little bit differently, and in a sense, it, it makes sense. If you've ever started reading a letter to you, and who is this from? I had to flip over, go to the back. Oh, okay, that's who it's from. Uh, you know why. The first century letter form makes sense. Because the writer identifies himself right up front. So you know who it is who is writing to you. Uh, and then he would identify the person receiving the letter. And then he would have some form of greeting. Now, we get a classic example of that, uh, even in the Roman context. In Acts 23, 26, commander of a Roman garrison located in Jerusalem, writing back to, uh, to the governor, he says, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. Model form, first century opening to a letter. Now, Paul followed that format, sort of. The format tended to be very brief. Paul's sometimes were not so brief. Paul tended to take the format but load it with a lot of information. And he certainly does that here in these opening verses of the book of Romans. As we've seen, just going through the verses that we've looked at so far, verses 1 through 5, Paul includes information about himself. He includes information about the... Savior who uh, has saved him and called him to ministry. And as we've seen, uh, he includes some information just about his ministry, that he himself has received grace and apostleship for the purpose of bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Christ among all the nations. Well, finally, he gets his mind back to the recipients, and uh, if, if delayed, then surely does name the ones to whom he writes here in verses 6 and 7, including you, he says, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at these verses, we want to think of them under several headings. First of all, just to think of the Roman Christians themselves. In the first place, the Roman Christians. Who is it that Paul writes this letter to? Well, he says in verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints. The all there is in something of an emphatic position. Uh, as we read this letter, we recognize that Paul is, is not writing just to the leadership of the church. He's not even writing just to all those persons whom he names in chapter 16. If you've read through Romans, you know, chapter 16 includes a lot of names, a lot of greetings. And uh, Paul isn't writing just to them, although he singles them out by name, but he's writing to all the Christians who are there in the city of Rome. Now, he doesn't say the church of Rome. Sometimes he'll say to the church that's in such and such a place. It's possible that, uh, and this is strictly conjecture, that uh, there was no central church, maybe several house churches sort of decentralized. We don't know, but he doesn't say to the church that's at Rome. He simply says to all in Rome, who are loved by God and belong to Jesus Christ. This group, as we've said before, is probably a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, although uh, probably at this point weighted more toward Gentiles, just on the uh, just gathering that from some different things that Paul writes in this letter, uh, including what he's just said in verse 5, for the sake of his name among all the nations, the word nations there can refer to Gentiles, 
uh, kind of looking out beyond Jerusalem and Judea, looking out at the world, the nations typically would have the idea of the Gentiles. And so as you're looking at this church, you're looking at a, a Gentile city, Rome, and probably a church made up predominantly but not exclusively of Gentiles, some Jewish believers there as well. Paul did not plant this church. It's not planted by, by Paul. Uh, Roman Catholic tradition has it that it was started by Peter, and he became the first pope, and so forth. Um, probably not. Uh, some have even argued Peter never went to Rome. Uh, I'm not sure you'd go that far. There may be some evidence that Peter had been in Rome. Uh, although it seems if Peter is the one who had started this church, Paul surely would have made mention of that at some point in the letter, uh, if not in the more personal chapter, chapter 16, with all of the greetings. Of course, they, they knew one another. And uh, Paul sometimes makes reference to other laborers who were involved with the church. Uh, it seems almost unthinkable that he should write this lengthy letter to the church at Rome and not mention Peter in, in regards to his ministry there if, in fact, he had planted the church. Plus, Paul says later in this letter, chapter 15, verse 20, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Um, is it likely he would be doing that if this was Peter's foundation and where Peter was was building and so forth? So how was it founded? How did the church in Rome come to be? Well, I think we have a clue. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, they have Pentecost. All these uh, people from all over are gathered in the city of Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, as it lists those people, it says they're from Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt. This is verse 10. The parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. End of verse 10, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, they say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Seems like a very likely possibility for the beginning of the church in Rome was these very people, visitors from Rome, who heard Peter that day. Uh, and so if Peter did plant the church in Rome, it was only indirectly through that sermon on the day of Pentecost, and perhaps these were converted, went back uh, either in the synagogues or among the Gentiles, the gospel begins to spread and a church develops sort of organically there in Rome. It seems to me that may be the best way to understand the beginning of this this church in, in the city of Rome. It's just spreading mouth to mouth. Now, Rome itself, um, certainly a strategic place for a church. Uh, of course, it was it was the capital city of the Roman Empire. Uh, for a first a citizen of the first century. In Rome, to hear of Rome, to hear of the city of Rome, the kind of impression that might make. Think today of, of hearing of the city of New York or hearing of the city of Washington, D.C., together, combined, maybe with Los Angeles thrown in for good measure. Uh, political capital, cultural capital, legal capital, it really was the heart of the empire in every way. So there would be, on the one hand, both awe and admiration for the city, and I suspect among many a sense of revulsion at the city. Uh, it was a glorious city, but it was also a corrupt city. It was uh, a horridly wicked city in many ways. It wasn't an easy city to be a Christian in. Uh, and yet there were those who were followers of Christ, or as one writer put it, they were a new humanity planted by God atop the deteriorating carcass of the old there in Rome. 
If, in fact, the church got its start through those who heard Peter on the day of Pentecost and went back to Rome, that would make it one of the earliest churches founded shortly after the, the day of Pentecost. So, which could account for what Paul says in verse 8, where he says, your faith is proclaimed to in all the world. The, the, the whole world knows of the faith of believers in the city of Rome. So that's the, uh, the, the, the city, the Christians to which Paul wrote this letter specifically. And we need to remember he was writing to specific people at a particular place. Many of them he didn't know, which accounts for some of the, some of the general nature of this letter. But we also recognize he wrote in about A.D. 57. We also recognize that while he wrote to the Romans by God's uh, will and inspiration of the scriptures, he wrote to us as well. And so we look at this letter not just as uh, an ancient letter for information's sake, but as it's part of God's word. It is a letter addressed to uh, all those who belong to Jesus Christ, those who were in greater Atlanta who are loved by God and called to be saints, and we take it as such. Now, they are under Paul's authority. He writes to them. Notice what he says in verse 6. God has given him grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you. Now, Paul may not have founded the church. He may not have been there personally, but as an apostle, they were subject to his authority. God has given them this apostleship for bringing people to faith in Christ, including those who are in Rome. So that's the first thing we want to look at. It's just these Roman Christians. Now, the second thing we want to look at in these verses is what is true about these Roman Christians as Christians, and therefore what's true of us as well. What's true about them, but also, therefore, what's true of us. First, they are a called people. Uh, we see this in verse 6, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We see it in verse 7, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, remember, Paul says in verse 1 that he is called to be an apostle. This word called occurs several times, which reminds us that the initiative in all this rests with the Lord. It was the Lord who called Paul to this position. It's the Lord who calls us to belong to Christ. It's the Lord who calls us to be saints. Salvation is from him. It begins with him, not with us, but with him and with his call. Well, what were they called to? Paul was called to be an apostle. What does he say they're called to? Well, he says they're called to belong to Jesus Christ. Interesting way to put it. We don't typically think of our faith, of our Christianity in those terms. So we might say, well, I'm a Christian or I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, or I have I believed in Jesus, I've been saved by Jesus. We don't typically say, well, I belong to Jesus. And yet that's a very biblical way of thinking of ourselves. Uh, Paul, Paul says, you have been bought with a price. You are no longer your own, he writes to the church in Corinth, particularly in the context of sexual sin. He says, you were bought with a price, you're not your own. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Even for Christians, that may be a little bit of a shock. You are not your own. You are not the one who is calling the shots in your life. You live as a Christian in submission to Christ. You belong to him. He has redeemed you out of slavery to sin and out of death into new life. He paid the price for your freedom with his own life, with his own blood, so that you belong to him. Now, granted, there is no greater freedom than to belong to Christ. Nevertheless, we do belong to him. 
We can't read his word and pick and choose what is acceptable to us or not. We belong to him. Uh, There's an obligation there, but there's also immense privilege there. What a privilege to belong to the king of kings, to serve him. It goes back to what Paul said in the very first words of this letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Because Paul would see himself as belonging to Christ Jesus, and therefore he is his servant. What are we called to? Well, he says we're called to belong to Jesus Christ. He also says in verse 7, we're called to be saints. Now, we need to get past the the common cultural baggage of that word, uh, that that the saint is some sort of super-Christian, someone who has uh, done outstanding deeds or works or even miracles or something like that and been recognized as a saint uh, and therefore superior to us all in the church. The Bible does not use this word that way. The word means holy ones. It kind of has its roots in the Old Testament of Israel as set apart to the Lord. The word holy having the idea of being consecrated to or set apart to. Uh, that, that Israel was set apart from the nations to belong to the Lord. Well, that's true of us in the New Covenant as his people. That we are God's holy ones called out from the nations to be a new nation constituted in Christ Jesus. And so it really has more a reference to our position than to our behavior. We are called to be God's people in the world and to bear witness to the grace and light of God in Christ Jesus. But just as it refers to position, that, that, all, that does have something to say about behavior. We think of holy behavior uh, as being Christ-like or godly for good measure. Because if we are those who have been bought by Christ and belong to Christ, uh, and are called to be his holy ones in the world, that's our standing, our position, but it also influences then how we live. We're no longer who we once were. We're a new creation in Christ. And by virtue of that new life, and by virtue of his authority over us in his word instructing us, we live in a different way than the rest of the world. There should be a fairly sharp line between behavior of the world and the behavior of Christians. Tragically, that line gets pretty fuzzy and sometimes seems to disappear altogether. But the world ought to be able to look at the church and see a people who behave quite differently than the rest of the world. So to be God's holy ones, or as it's translated here, his saints, means that we have standing as God's people in the world and they're therefore separate from the world, called out from the world, distinct from the world, even as we're still in the world. But then that also affects our behavior. To put it another way, we are a people justified, righteous in Christ, and a people who are being sanctified, being made more and more like Christ. So that's our calling, uh, to belong to Jesus Christ, our calling to be his holy ones, his saints in the world. But there's also something else true about these Christians that's true of us. Not only that we're a called people, but we're also a loved people. Notice that. Don't skip too quickly over what he says in verse 7. To those who are in Rome who are loved by God. Very easy just to skip over that short little phrase. But how magnificent. that's, That's the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Dear friends, we're not just people with certain standing. We're not just people who are called to live a certain way. 
We are near and dear to the heart of our Heavenly Father. There's a beautiful expression in the Old Testament. The Lord says of his people, you are my treasured possession. And we need to recognize that God doesn't just save us to give us a standing and to call us to behave a certain way. He saved us because he loves us, because he wants to know us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to be in a relationship to him as his children. That's his motivation in our redemption in in what he has done for us so it's it's just kind of squeezed in there but it's not an incidental phrase at all to those in rome who are loved by god and that would be all of them all the christians that are there in rome not just certain ones but all the believers so what's true of them is true of us we are a called people we are also a deeply deeply loved people and then the last thing that he has here We've looked at the Roman Christians. We looked at what's true about them that's true of us. But then the last thing is this blessing that he pronounces on the Roman Christians, which, again, is a blessing we also enjoy uh, in, in verse 7. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This exact formulation is found in many of Paul's other letters. Um, he sort of takes what was a customary greeting among the Jews, shalom, peace, and expands it. He, he makes it distinctively Christian uh, when he says that. He says, grace to you. Uh, grace, of course, refers to God's undeserved love, especially as it's shown to us in Christ Jesus. Uh, the, the, the book of Romans is about the gospel. Uh, and if you wanted to sum up the gospel in simply one word, it would be grace. God's doing for us what we did not deserve, what we could not earn, and yet in his love, in his mercy, he did grace and peace to you, which I think is the proper order. Peace grows out of grace. Peace, of course, is peace with God that we have through Christ and the gospel. Therefore, a foundation for peace with other people. Uh, that because we aren't right with God, then we have the foundation by which we can be right with, enjoy peace with other people, and uh, certainly peace within ourselves, uh, because we know the living God, because we know that he loves us, because we know that he is in charge of all things and whatever we're going through, it's in his hands, and he is a good and faithful Lord, and he will always be gracious to us. And its source is from God the Father. Uh, comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul does not in any way slight the deity of Christ there. In fact, later on in Romans, in Romans 9, he refers to Jesus. Uh, he says, to them, the Jews belong the patriarchs, and their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. So Paul is uh, referring to a couple members of the Trinity here, but he, he, does, he, he does not in any way slight the deity of Christ uh, Lord is as much a term of deity as you come out of the Old Testament as God is. Paul's greeting is no mere formality. He doesn't just follow the form, but he, he, he loads it. He, he fills it with such theological, uh, biblical truth, almost to the point that it's bursting at the seams weighs it down with as much love and truth and grace as he can and greets them in this way. And this greeting, uh, this final greeting, grace to you and peace, is no mere formality. 
As he speaks that to them, he recognizes that those things, grace and peace in Christ, are the greatest boon, the greatest blessing that any human being can have or can enjoy. The grace of God, salvation in Christ, peace with God, reconciliation through Christ. These things are no mere formality, but what he sincerely desires for them and what he hopes to communicate to them and to us in this letter as we proceed through it. Grace and peace from God and from Christ. You know, if you don't have those two things, grace from God, peace with God in Christ, if you don't have those two things, then it really doesn't matter what else you have in this world. You have nothing. But if you have those things, if you have grace and peace, from God in Christ, then you have everything. You know, whatever else you don't have in this world, if you have the grace of God in Christ, if you have peace with God in Christ, then you, above all people, are most blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words, uh, Lord, uh, words of greeting to be sure, and yet even there, Paul just fills it with a gospel. And we thank you, Lord, for these words. Thank you that we can know grace from you, that we can know peace with you. Thank you, Lord, for who we are as your people. Thank you for this church in Rome. Father, we pray that as we study this letter originally written to them, but intended for all your people in all places until Christ comes back, Lord, that it will speak to us, your people, as well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.